Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast, episode number 100. This episode is a very special one that comes full circle for all the listeners who've ever wondered what exactly is the neuroscience of social and emotional learning. Today, this question will be solved with Dr. Mary Helen Imordino Yang, who is a professor of education, psychology and neuroscience at the University of Southern California and director of the USC Center for Effective Neuroscience, Development, Learning and Education called CANDLE. She studies the psychological and neurobiological development of emotion and self-awareness and connections to social, cognitive and moral development in educational settings. What I find to be powerful about Dr. Mary Helen is that although she's a former public junior high school science teacher who went on to earn her doctorate at Harvard University and has received numerous awards for her work and research, she is able to set us straight when it comes to understanding how the emotions we have with others and our social interactions can change our brain and literally shape who we are with powerful findings that she can prove with fMRI scans. To explain exactly how she's doing this, I've included a link to an episode of Nova on PBS where Mary Helen Imordino Yang explains exactly what she's doing with students, how she's questioning them, and measuring their brain activity to improve learning. Here's a quick clip. Since her days as a teacher, University of Southern California neuroscientist Mary Helen Imordino Yang has been interested in knowing how emotions factor into learning. I quickly realized that there was very, very little known about the kind of stuff that we really care about in education, like how people become inspired. How do we become interested in things? How do we build curiosity? And how can we support that process? In trying to identify which parts of the brain are involved in the deepest and most meaningful learning, Imordino Yang works with teens from troubled neighborhoods. We're going to be watching stories. We really want to know what you think. So there's no right or wrong answers. These are kids who see a lot of crime. They see a lot of dangerous things. They see a lot of poverty. And we wanted to understand how do they make meaning of that world around them. Without further ado, here's Mary Helen Imordino Yang. Welcome, Mary Helen. It is beyond incredible to have this opportunity to speak with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, I first started to study your work back in 2015 when an educator actually urged me to add neuroscience to my work. I was awarded a character ed grant in Arizona for programs and services in the schools. And one of the educators said, I need you to rewrite your book and add the, the basics of neuroscience in there. And I thought, well, I could say no, this is too big of a project, but I was already studying some brain research and neuroscience specialist and Dan Siegel. And then I started to study your work and I thought I can do this. And thank goodness that you were out there because back when I was first starting to learn the basics of neuroscience, there weren't many places to look. So I just wanna thank you for the work that you've been doing. And uh, I think I first saw you doing something with Dr. Daniel Siegel. We had him on episode number 28. Um, and then I saw you this summer on his Pep Me Up community chats <laughs> when you came on in July. And I was just dying to contact you. And so I'm just so grateful that 
it ended up that you were coming towards my hundredth episode. And I thought I've got to have you on because you bring everything full circle. So oh, thank okay. you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you said it really well on Dan's event and I put a link to his pet me up talk in the show notes. So you don't have to repeat everything you said there, but you mentioned back in 2001, 2002, there wasn't much out there on culture in the brain and then you looked at emotion and it was just some basic stuff about the amygdala and how certain parts of our brain light up and the social brain was still in its infancy. Can you talk about where you began your work with Antonio Damasio uh, measuring brain activity and connecting relationships and emotions to our future results? Uh, sure. So, I mean, I think I'll take the story back a little farther. So um, as a kid, uh, I always felt like, I mean, I always felt like school, I couldn't have explained it well, but school never really connected to what I felt efficacious doing, right? Like it was like I could do this stuff, um, but I would forget to because I had so many other important things I was thinking about, you know, the moment I left school. Um, you know, in my case, I lived in a rural place in Connecticut and I'd be out in the woods doing stuff and, you know, running a, a, all this farm and all these things and you know and then monday morning and be like oh, oh man i didn't do my homework and you know and i just i never really felt like i fit in well um or motivated by what was happening at school or interested very much by it um except for in particular like you know little isolated situations where you did a project on something and those i still remember right like i right. still remember working on these different things like that where i actually was building my own um, you know, big report or project on something which really interested me. And, and so sort of fast forward um, up to uh, my early uh, 20s, um, and I, for a lot of complicated reasons, I never had thought of wanting to go back uh, after, you know, I, I mean, I did well, I went to a, a good college and all that, but afterward, I, I, I never thought of wanting to go back to K-12 education. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but I, I, I ended up for a lot of complicated reasons, taking a job teaching in uh, South Boston, basically in a public junior senior high school, teaching science. And um, I just, I thought it was kind of a stopgap to support myself. Um, and uh, it, I got absolutely hooked on the problem space there. Just, it turned out to be a, a, a school district that was, um, like the second most uh, languages spoken of any school district in the nation at that time. Uh, it had uh, immigrant kids from all over the world and refugees pouring in from basically every continent and mixing together in this amazing sort of a soup of cultural diversity and adolescent growth. Uh, and I was there teaching uh, science and I had to build the curriculum and stuff because the, the you know, the school's uh, curriculum wasn't accredited and things. So I started really becoming fascinated by the ways in which kids relationships, their immigration stories, their, their, you know, you know, their, their, their um, personal ways and cultural ways of knowing things from home and their ways of valuing different kinds of problems and understandings and, and, and the kinds of things they were curious about just became an amazingly interesting landscape for me to think about the development of the brain. I'd always 
been sort of inclined to think about natural and biological stuff like the brain. And, and all of a sudden I saw it as this incredibly situated problem that was really dynamic and really, really important for society. So that's kind of where I first started with this. Um, and, you know, so from there, I went back to graduate school at Harvard and I started, you know, studying social, emotional and cognitive development. And, and the deeper I got into that problem space, the more I realized, you know, we, in education, we really should be trying to constrain the theories we're building and inform them based on what's known about the, the biological um, impact and functioning around culture and social emotional experience and, and self-development and adolescence. And, and, and there is, I think what you're referring to in the early 2000s when I was in graduate school, I became really quickly, um, you know, uh, frustrated by the fact that there wasn't a lot known about how culture and emotion in, in complex social situations are actually shaping brain development or the ways that kids think are uh, driving the way they feel and the way they understand. We knew quite a lot of it from the psychological and human developmental studies, but not, uh, you know, we really couldn't constrain what we were looking at based on the neurobiology yet because we just didn't know enough. Um, and so it was that kind of driving question that I brought to um, a postdoc with Antonio Damasio. He was also really interested at that time in, in studying um, what he was calling social emotions. So the emotions we have about ourselves, about other people, emotions like compassion and contempt and admiration. And, uh, uh, you know, almost nothing was known about the biological aspects of those emotions. So I, I have this very like, you know, uh, strong memory of sitting down with him during the first week of my postdoc in his office and him basically looking at me and saying like, I'm really interested in trying to understand how the brain that you know is developed around is evolved around emotions that keep us safe and physically you know sort of well in the here and now you know make us engage in behaviors that are advantageous to us and our species that make us um, you know manage our physiology to stay within the legal limits of you know what what blood pressure levels and all these things you need to be able to stay alive and to and to be biologically uh, healthy and flourishing um, you know how do those systems get repurposed or developed into systems that also support complex emotions like compassion or like admiration for virtue or like contempt or jealousy things that are complex emotions that don't pertain to your direct physical, you know, bodily safety anymore, but pertain to something that you might call your sort of moral or ethical or, or identif uh, you know, identity related safety and belonging. Um, and so I said, I was interested in that too. So we said, well, great, go figure out a way to study it. And then come back and let me know what you figure out. So, uh, you know, it's only a little bit tongue in cheek. So I, I went off and tried to figure out how to study this stuff. And I was bringing, um, uh, you know, a, a background in human development research and a background as a teacher. So at Harvard, I've been really trained to do interviews with people, right? To sit and think about with someone, you know, what meaning they make, what are they experiencing? How do they understand things? And, and you know, systematic methods for, for you know, sort of describing uh, that. Um, and then now I was learning a lot more about, uh, you know, how to do biological experiments that would help us to isolate particular kinds of processes in the brain and understand their dynamics. And so I tried to bring those two ways of understanding and studying uh, human beings together. And that was the starting point for this 
um, for this, uh, you know, sort of research trajectory around uh, the neurobiological correlates of human meaning making. And, and the reason I really focused, you know, I've been sort of paring down and really honing in on adolescence is because adolescence, well, there's a lot of reasons. Adolescence is a, is a, is a time period that I think a developmental period, which is, you know, many people are now realizing is an amazing period of brain development, uh, especially around social and emotional and cognitive uh, dimensions of, of development, right? The, the new intellectual capacities to begin to think abstractly, to begin to think about what stuff means in a bigger sense and not just what's happening here and now the way younger kids do um, uh, is really marked in adolescence, you know, and uh, the, the sort of drive to assign bigger meaning to everything, right, uh, is really a, a feature of adolescence everywhere, right? Um, you know, when you're an adolescent, you know, the shoes you wear aren't just shoes. They're like a statement about who you are and what kind of music you like and who your friends are and what you think about adults and, you know what I mean, and what you like to do. And, you know, I mean, that just kind of drive to, to assign bigger, uh, bigger significance to what would be just very mundane things uh, and actions and decisions, right, is, is for me the defining feature of adolescence. And um, it strikes me that our, our education systems really, they don't just not developmentally support that a lot of the time, they actively punish it uh, mm -hmm. and undermine it, right? Um, and I think with really uh, bad effect for many, many of our, of our youth. Um, and, and so that's kind of where I got to this stage where I'm really trying to understand how it is that young people make meaning out of things, how they construct conscious experience and how that um, propensity or drive to construct conscious experience and narratives out of the things that happen um, is potentially what we might call an epigenetic force in their own brain growth. So a force from outside the genome, right? That actually drives and organizes the growth of their brain um, with implications for mental and physical health and also for intellectual capacity and, uh, and well-being, emotional well-being. Um, so that's kind of how I got to this place. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. It absolutely does. And, you know, I first saw the implications of social emotional when I was teaching in the classroom. I had behavioral students and certain things would work just by trial and error. And I started to see the results of it. And it just kind of stuck in my head that, you know, there wasn't a lot of training out there for us with regards to this. But I remembered all over the years, I went and worked for an educational publisher and always in the back of my head was, you know, why aren't these skills included in the textbooks that I'm selling for Pearson? Why is there not like a little breakout in the side of a math problem on what we now know as growth mindsets? You know, mm -hmm. like keep trying all these things that I just saw worked really well as, as time went on, I yeah. just couldn't let it go. And yeah. then I wasn't measuring their brains, this, these students' brains and scanners. I just saw and took note and couldn't let it go. So here's- Yeah, it's really important. You know, educators and parents who are really tuned into what kids are doing and thinking hard with them about, you know, their own growth and development are, have noticed this stuff for, you know, ages. And, right. and so it's really, I think, time for our standard educational institutional structures and training to start to incorporate it in a serious way. And 
and also to think about how it's changing now um, with new kinds of demands and affordances around information gathering and school, you know, with social media, with other kinds of digital learning, you know, all the new stuff that, you know, is impacting the brain in ways that we don't really understand yet because it's so new and, you know, humans have never been exposed to this in the history of our species. So how is it changing us? We need to understand that stuff too. We definitely do. And so I watched one of your earlier presentations and we go back 2012 and it was called, We Feel, Therefore We Learn. And I found this fascinating. You talk about some of your early social emotional experiments. Can you just share in a nutshell how our brain changes when we feel inspired or compassionate towards another human being? Like you talked about, like I can see someone doing a painting and they're so skillful and you look and you go, oh, wow, that is just brilliant. And then you could see someone doing something else, like, you know, maybe a talented gymnast or something. You just see them in their craft and you think, oh, you stop in your tracks. What is happening? Why is that so important at the brain level? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I think those early experiments, what we were trying to test, so now this is me and Antonio and his wife, Hannah, who's also a brilliant neuroscientist, um, working together was how might... Um, regions of the brain that are specialized for managing sort of internal bodily functioning and survival, right? Regions that, for example, feel your heart beating, you know, and let you know when it's pounding versus not, right? Or, you know, regions that are sort of mapping out the internal wellness or and telling you you don't feel well or you do feel well. Right, how might, or you know, you've got a stomach ache or things like that, how might those regions of the brain be also involved in um, our social emotional experience and our cognition, in our in our thinking at a conscious level? You know, for millennia, poets have talked about, right, the the stone in the pit of my stomach, right? To, when I find out bad news or the, you know, the, the heart fluttering with love or the head fluttering, with, like different cultures put it in different places, but we embody our, you know, the physio physiological manifestations of our meaning making and our interpretations and our thinking. And so we had a set of hypotheses that, um, that these, uh, that these complex emotions about, you know, admiring, a gymnast with amazing skill, or alternatively, admiring, uh, uh, you know, a, a civil rights leader with amazing, you know, uh, uh, dispositions and character strengths, right? Um, that you can't directly see, but you infer based on a whole series of decisions and across a life trajectory in a context, right? Which is a very complex kind of uh, kind of uh, you know analysis that you do on situations, right? And this is the kind of complex analysis that adolescents are just beginning to really, you know, play in. Um, and, and so we wanted to know whether it would be the case that experiencing strong emotions about things like that, about social stimuli that have nothing to do with your own direct physical bodily well-being or danger or satiation or anything like that, would nonetheless activate um, regions and circuits and systems in the brain that are involved in managing consciousness, like as compared to coma, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and in mapping and feeling the state of your internal wellness and bodily sort of activation, um, your digestion, your heart rate, these kinds of things. And, and that was what the first studies 
showed was that indeed that's the case that when people are experiencing claim to be experiencing strong emotions about moral and uh, and ethical issues about uh, you know abstract ideas like character traits and dispositions of mind or more uh, embodied physical you know skills and and ills and pains right like injuring yourself or or like someone who can really do some kind of skill like gymnastics incredibly you know skillfully right that that all of those kinds of emotions that we tested they all showed uh, the propensity to activate these these systems in the brain systematically and and so that's a really powerful statement i think for the the sort of uh notion that the way that we humans really come to think about complex uh ideas and issues is by kind of specializing the same regions of our brain and circuits of our brain that are already there keeping you alive, keeping you well, managing the internal sort of uh, uh, state of your uh, physiology uh, and your behavior uh, and making you hungry versus satiated, all these kinds of basic drives, those same systems are being repurposed and specialized in the service of complex thinking. And so that really, for educators, I think is an, a really important insight because what it tells us is that, you know, no wonder how you physically feel and how you emotionally feel are so tightly tied to one another. No wonder how you, uh, you know, interpret your own positionality in a social situation or in a cultural way of, uh, you know, interacting is so directly uh, uh, related to the ways in which you think in that situation and your capacities for doing intellectual work in that situation. Um, and there is now a whole field worth of evidence across everything from uh, stereotype threat to anxiety about math to uh, belonging and the importance of social well-being and relationships for kids' be ability to think about complex disciplinary stuff. Um, that really helps us to understand that the social emotional side of neural functioning and learning and the cognitive side of it are not separate things. So we talk about oftentimes, uh, you know, the cognition is impacted by the emotion or the cognition is enabled by a certain emotion, but I think it's actually even more fundamental than that. The cognition and the emotion are actually really just two lenses to apply to the same thought process, thinking is inherently emotional and cultural and situated in social meaning making. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, even if you're thinking about science or math, you're thinking about it in a way that connects to the experience of being you, to the cultural uh, sort of situation in which you're doing that work, right? The historical context of that work, and the meaning that that work represents for your ability to succeed in today's world or to be, you know, to have an impact on other people or to accomplish things that you care about. And, and we just cannot tease those apart in the functioning of a real person. We, we scientists are trained to and love to, uh, and we learn a lot from carving up uh, human being psychological functioning into discrete, you know, processes and categories and, and there's a lot of usefulness to that. But what we always need to remember, I mean, this is what my friend David Daniel calls uh, the Frankenstein problem, right? I think it's a beautiful way to think about this. 
what we always need to remember is that the whole person is not a stitched together monster with a whole bunch of different mechanisms, you know, sort of all being like sewn up into one. It's a person that has these many facets or dimensions to themselves. And we can shine the light to look at one or the other of these. But in reality, the person is activating and utilizing these all, all the time. And so there is no such thing as thinking without motion. And there is no such thing as thinking in the absence of a cultural context or identity. And so my neuroscience research really reflects the, the, that, um, that appreciation and that perspective. And is, I try to um, you know, reveal the, the ways in which one's own construction of a story around one's positionality, one's experience, one's narrative, one's identity is, uh, is a feature of the, of, that's organizing the dynamics of the thought process and what that looks like across domains of thinking. This is so powerful, Mary Helen. And I know we're getting close to the end of our time. So I'm just gonna kind of give you one last question that ties into abstract talk versus concrete because you were talking about it, um, thinking about it as an educator, how we could start to perhaps prompt our students or as parents, your research, or you're showing that, you know, we've all known the marshmallow experiment that, you know, those children that were able to delay gratification had significant success later in life. So what are you seeing with concrete versus abstract and how it can change the results of a child's future, thinking about how we can use this as an educator or a parent? Yeah, uh, there are a lot of questions, a lot of layers to that question. So, so let me just step back to the marshmallow task and, and, and talk about what that was meant to capture, which is um, this notion of executive control and delay of gratification, right? Being able to manage yourself in a situation and kind of become meta aware and conjure strategies to help yourself be strategic about the way in which you behave. And that turns out to be a really important, um, a really important ability for all kinds of success as a human and uh, you know, from academic success to life success in all kinds of ways. But what's also, I think, a really important thing to remember is that that early work with the marshmallow was done with kids who came from uh, uh, fairly privileged circumstances and from families who, uh, uh, who had the resources they needed to be able to, to, to feed their children and things like that appropriately um, and adequately. And so there's now a lot of new work uh, by really brilliant psychological scientists showing, for example, that um, you know, uh, good outcomes are not, uh, you, you know, that the, the relationship to adult outcomes of a kid's ability to eat or not eat the marshmallow is very much shaped by their uh, circumstances growing up. So mm-hmm. for kids who grow up in uh, poverty, in unstable family situations, for example, uh, it's actually more advantageous for them to snatch the marshmallow the moment they can because it would be stupid to wait because it may not be there for you 15 minutes later right. or somebody else might eat it, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, all this to say that kids, the patterns of development that are advantageous for kids, right, 
that are adapted for kids are the ones that they gravitate toward. And so the degree to which kids do these things is in part resting on the natural inclination, so to speak, of the kid. But those natural inclinations are always developing in a context, um, a social context, and uh, you know, broadly construed, and a cognitive context, a context of resources and affordances. And so we need to remember that all the kid behaviors that kids engage in, they engage in because of an interaction between their sort of proclivities and their and the what's adaptive for them, what's beneficial and advantageous for them in the context in which they live. So, um, you know, just to say that we need to be very sensitive again about the ways in which we interpret these results that there's no such thing as something that's universally good for people, right? Um, there's another, there's another really powerful study, I think, by Greg Miller and uh, Eva Chen and others that I just think is uh, such an interesting one. Um, where they showed that, uh, in forgive me for the details, I'd have to go back and look at it, but you know, they looked at uh, uh, black boys' uh, executive control capacity, right? And then uh, correlated that with their long-term outcomes. And sure enough, unsurprisingly, they find that, um, you know, the better uh, a kid's uh, executive control, which is like the, the, the adolescent equivalent of not eating the marshmallow, right? Mm -hmm. um, the better their outcomes on all kinds of measures from academic uh, to personal to, uh, to uh, you know, um, uh, relationship satisfaction and things like that in young adulthood. But what they also showed is that only for the black boys and not for other teenagers who were not from stigmatized groups, um, uh, there was also a cost. So the higher their executive control, the better their outcomes, but the more telomere shortening they showed by age 22, 23. So in other words, the more genetic aging they had undergone. And, mm -hmm. and what that basically shows you is that those kids were wearing themselves out biologically by constantly almost defying a stereotype for what black boys should be like. And when they do well, and when they have good self-management skills, and when they're academically inclined to success and good relationships, right, that actually takes a toll on them because they're constantly doing that against the expectations of the society around them. And that's tiring. That wears you out. So, you know, these things are very complex. Our thinking is always in a context. And what is really important for that context is not just the sort of objective reality of it is if there were such a thing, but the person's experience of it. Um, so it's those boys, presumably it's their interpretation of the world as not expecting them to do well in these ways that puts a burden on them. And that's also demonstrated by a follow-up study that Miller and his colleagues did, um, where they showed that those effects were mitigated. They were weakened um, in, uh, boys whose parents expressly talked to them about racism and how to manage themselves in a world where people didn't expect them to do well, but they would anyway. Um, and so it just shows you that your skills for interpreting your own reactions and other people's reactions are actually interacting in complex dynamic ways with the way in which you feel. And that in turn shapes the way in which you think, which is also related to your biological health, right? All of this is a big ball of yarn. And as scientists, we can pick the threads, but as a person, 
you're a knitted sweater, right? You're not, you're not a ball of yarn with just individual frayed threads. So, um, uh, so that's like a very long-winded beginning of an answer, but then I'll, I'll go into what we're finding about abstract and cognitive thinking. So uh, what we're basically finding, and we have a, 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 a relatively new paper came out in May, 2020, I think. Um, I, me with a colleague, Doug Connect, who's at the Bank Street uh, College of Education. Um, we wrote a paper about some work we're doing together with adolescents. Um, and these are uh, adolescents of color from immigrant, uh, families with immigrant parents in low SES Los Angeles um, from a variety of ethnic backgrounds. And we basically, but these are all kids who at the beginning of the study are doing fine in school. They're not under any disciplinary action. Um, they are not using substances. They're not um, engaging in like excessively risky behavior. So these are like the kids that your grandma would say, oh, those are the kids who are doing what they're supposed to do, right? And they're doing fine. Um, so we were, we've been following a cohort of these kids across time and they're now young adults. And so what we find is that uh, and I think this is a really powerful statement for the role of education and integrating social and emotional meaning making into the intellectual development of, of young people, is that the ways kids think about their world, their experience, the reasons the world works the way it does, uh, who they are, what they aspire to be in the future, right? The way in which they think about these things is actively is shaping the development of their brain over time, which in turn produces good adult outcomes. And, and so what we find is that we can sort of very coarsely as a first pass, characterize the way kids make meaning as either, um, it, it's really a continuum, but from concrete to abstract. And kids can do and should do a lot of both. Right. So it's not that one is bad and one is good, but, you know, concrete meaning making is sort of your ability to um, engage in the here and now to notice what's around, to engage with other people appropriately, to show empathy um, and to, uh, you know, to sort of notice what's happening and incorporate that into your own you know, uh, 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 adjustments for that into your own behavior. Right. That kind of thing. And that's associated with. Um, basically in the brain executive control, which is, you know, that's the marshmallow test at age 15, okay? And, and that's good, it, it's associated with better relationships, uh, wider range of friends, uh, appreciation of diversity, these kinds of things, right? So kids who can sort of manage their social world now, here and now uh, effectively. So that is uncorrelated with another kind of thinking that kids can also do, right? And this is the kind of thinking that we're calling abstract. Well, you know, we're calling it this out of a century of work on abstract thinking in adolescence, right? Um, where the idea is you can also, as a thinker, sort of step back from the here and now, the you know, giving your friend a hug when they're sad kind of thing, and also think about what's the bigger story here? How does this situation or emotion or decision or thing I witnessed or learned about fit into a bigger narrative about the world and how it works, about uh, gravity and, you know, how, you know, it's, it's, it's role in organizing the universe, right? About any kind of concept that sort of transcends a particular situation, but that is instead something sort of generally true about the way things happen, which you can then apply in different situations to make sense out of them. And this is really the foundation, this kind of thinking is the foundation for 
what you might call uh, moral or ethical thinking, right? Being able to appreciate the character and dispositional traits of a civil rights leader, say, right? You don't, the way that person is walking down the street in the middle of the road, it, it, there's no particular thing to admire there, except for what it demonstrates about the, the, the capacity and drive of that person morally, ethically, socially, civically, right? So it's not about the action, it's about the bigger context and meaning of that action. Kids who showed us that they were inclined to move to that kind of meaning making, to talk about not just, you know, when we shared with them the story of Malala in Pakistan getting shot in the head by the Taliban because she kept going to school, right? Not just about like, oh, I feel so bad for her, that's so unfair, I hope she makes it, which is a useful thing to do, but also say, and they sort of step back, they might close their eyes, they may look away for a moment, they may cover their face, right? And we actually can show these things experimentally and come back and say, you know, it also makes me think about, I go to school all the time with my friends and we don't, we just take for granted the opportunity we have. And, or, you know, boy, it makes me realize I never thought about it before, but education should be a human right. Anybody who wants to get educated should have that opportunity. It's not right for some to withhold it from others, right? These big, broad kinds of statements that incorporate individual situations and things you know and see, but tell a bigger story about the system of the, the way that that, you know, sort of all plays out. Um, systems level thinking, we think about this, or abstract or values oriented thinking. Kids who do that, that propensity turns out to be incredibly powerful. Based on the degree to which a kid does that at age like 14 to 15, we can predict how the networks in their brain that are involved in executive control and, and, and attentional focus and the networks in their brain involved in emotional experience and complex deep thinking and narrative and episodic memories so the ability to have a, a memory about yourself in time and about big ideas and concepts, not just you know, sort of factual recall or not just uh, you know, procedural memory, like I know how to tie my shoes, but big story-like memory about what's, what happened and what it means, right? That kind of, those, the brain systems that support that kind of thinking are actively growing and organizing themselves more in kids who engage in abstract thinking. And this is above and beyond the effects of IQ, above and beyond the effects of socioeconomic status, parental education level, right? So it's something that seems to be holding across kids that all kids have a chance to do this. And when kids do this, it grows them over time. And in turn, that brain development predicts their young adult uh, outcomes it, about the stuff we really care about, like their identity cohesion, right? Which is basically the degree to which they feel like they know who they are and they have a strong sense of self versus, you know, I kind of go along with whatever the crowd thinks. Like, I don't really have an opinion for myself, like whatever everybody else thinks is right thing to do. I just believe that too, right? Which is not a good way to be, right? Um, or how much you like yourself by your own rating, how much you like your close relationships, how much uh, young adults say that their educational or uh, work opportunities that they are engaged in are actually the ones they always hoped for for themselves, right? These kinds of questions that, that really get at what we want for our young people are predicted by this brain growth, which is in turn predicted by this ability or proclivity to think complexly about issues and ideas. So why does this matter for education? Mm -hmm. Because 
there are there are models of adolescent education, you know, middle and high school that really do an amazing job to support this kind of deep thinking among among young people, this kind of complex meaning making, this kind of engagement in the bigger process of understanding what's happening and why, right? Why does this ball roll down this ramp and, you know, oh, that's the same reason as the moon goes around the earth, right? And right, like, and being able to sort of engage deeply in the storytelling that allows you to connect those ideas together. That is something which our education system traditionally does not support. As long as you know the answer to why the ball rolls down the map ramp and you know the answer to why the moon goes around the earth, you got it right, you move on. You don't stop to think about, well, wait a minute, what is that actually about, right? And, and so what we really are working toward now is helping educators think about how we might really, really redesign adolescent education so that it focuses on youth's abilities to make this kind of meaning in many different domains as compared to focusing on uh, the direct knowledge building or skill building, which are the outcomes we care about now. The knowledge and the skill follows your ability to think abstractly because when you think abstractly, all of a sudden you need to know, how do I solve fractions? Because I've got this big problem I'm trying to think about and it has to, you know what I mean? Fractions are a part of it. So wait, can you show me again, right? Or like, I have this big idea I want to talk about about my neighborhood. Um, can you teach me again how a topic sentence will make my, my, my article more interesting and grab people, right? So they'll hear what I have to say. Right? So the skill building follows on the, the, the drive of the young person to think about an idea or, or, or a system that they really care about. And when we flip education on its head like that, we, and we can see this because there are isolated examples of amazing schools, even public schools in very low SES areas that have been doing this for 30 years, um, like the, the PBAC schools in New York City, right? that um, have amazing success, much better success with their young people's long-term outcomes academically as well as personally um, than do traditional schools uh, educating the same, same kids. So it really, this whole, um, the neuroscience, but also what I really like and what gives me heart is that the neuroscientific findings are very nicely aligned with a century of, uh, of, of exquisitely thoughtful developmental research that uh, scholars of human development have been working on, right? So we know, we've known for a hundred years, right? A lot about how young people make meaning, how they bring emotion to their thinking. Um, but now we're finding that the propensity to do so can actually be described at a neurobiological level, which gives us new insights into the importance of that process and also its functioning. And I think it, it's a call to action that we really need to rethink the way we value and educate our, our young people and the narrative around um, their, what they're capable of and what it means to be successful. Well, this is such powerful information, Mary Helen. And I have to repeat what Dr. Dan Siegel said to you because your research truly has shown incredible pioneering and achievement. 
uh, when it comes to social emotional experiments, how we think, feel, the emotions we have, that we can change the structure of our brains. And this podcast now, our 100th episode is going into over 132 countries with a lot of educators, a lot of school superintendents that follow. So I hope everyone gets a chance to really take in and think about some of the concepts you've talked about here to rethink how education will be in the future. And I want to Thank you so much for your time and for all you're doing. You know, I just want to say one other thing too. Like, thank you for complimenting my research <laughs> and to Dan also. But you know what I really think is what's doing the work here is the kids who are participating, right? All yeah. we're doing is enabling their message to come through and thinking, mm -hmm. you know, putting them in situations where they can systematically show us what they're capable of exactly. and listen to them when they do that, right? Yeah. And, and so that's a lesson that, you know, that educators and parents around the world can take, right? Become a researcher, so to speak. Right. Be inquisitive and curious about the meaning that the young people in your care are making. Engage with them about how they subjectively understand and feel things and, and move them into a place with you where you can think uh, in maybe more sophisticated or, or, or informed or nuanced ways about that. That's, that's your role as an educator. And all I'm doing is, um, is, is enabling kids to show us, right? What it is they do that's so amazing. Yeah. And, and, and like, that's a lesson we can all, we can all, I think, try to do. And I keep trying to do it in better and better ways. And, you know, any suggestions are welcome. <laughs> Love it. I thank you so much for your time, Mary Helen. You're welcome. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.